From Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News, this is an American Radio Works special report, A Russian Journey. I'm Deborah Amos. The citizens of Moscow, they think that the Moscow is the pearl of Russia, but they are wrong. Moscow, along with St. Petersburg, are the preeminent Russian cities. But Russians will tell you that the real Russia lies elsewhere, in the villages of Russia's heartland. In the coming hour, a journey through provincial Russia. Some 10 years after the collapse of communism, there is a hint of optimism. The changes in, in people's mentalities, that people start to believe in change, that it's not impossible to change Russia into a modern country. Stay tuned for A Russian Journey, a special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. First, this news update. This is a special report from American Radio Works, A Russian Journey. I'm Deborah Amos. A little more than 200 years ago, a member of the Russian gentry with a social conscience drove along the road that passes from St. Petersburg to Moscow. He took notes on what he saw and turned his reporting into an impassioned plea for reform. For this, he was exiled to Siberia. Despairing of any changes, he finally committed suicide. He became a martyr for future generations of Russian reformers and revolutionaries. Every Russian knows his name, Alexander Radishev, and his journey from St. Petersburg to Moscow has long been required classroom reading. With a copy of Radishev's book as her guide, NPR's Anne Garrels recently retraced his journey. Here is her report. Since Alexander Radishev's days, Russia has experienced wars, famines, a bloody revolution, and 10 years ago, a bloodless one. Throughout, the road from St. Petersburg to Moscow has stood witness. The villages and towns along the way, tenacious monuments to Russia's history. Though now a paved highway, the St. Petersburg to Moscow road still follows every twist and turn of Radishev's route. It's a good place to look at the state of Russia and its grasp for freedom and prosperity, issues that resonate just as they did 200 years ago. Radishev visited 24 settlements in his journey, documenting the harsh laws, arbitrary punishment, burdensome taxes, and suffocating censorship. He chose this route because he said the two great cities, St. Petersburg and Moscow, do not reflect the true Russian condition. That's still the case. finally off. Now, Radishev did this trip in a carriage and horses. Uh, we're doing it in a red Jiguli. It's a 1989 version, so we hope everything goes okay. It took Radishev anywhere between four to five days to do the trip. We could easily do the trip in 24 hours, 424 miles now. But as Radishev said, the longer you take, the farther you'll get. The speedometer doesn't work and the suspension seem better days, but our driver, 37-year-old Kostya Vasin, is a master at the wheel. With tousled blonde hair and clear blue eyes, he knows every bump of the route by heart. He's been driving it as a trucker for 13 years. 
we pass grand St. Petersburg hotels, a busy McDonald's, and then the city begins to dissolve into gray deteriorating apartment buildings. They give way to green fields and birch groves, interrupted only by clusters of one-story wooden houses and small towns. This is the Russian heartland. We've only been on the road for a few miles, and we've already been waved over by a policeman. Kostya says it's a document check. They will always get you for something, some problems with your papers or with the car. Russian cars are not Mercedes or Volvos. There is always something broken. It's better to pay immediately, because if you dawdle or look for a way out, you wind up paying a bigger fine. 200 years ago, a driver at a post station confronted Radishev with a thinly veiled demand for a bribe. It was the order of the day. According to Kostya, bribes are still the way things work. Further along, we're stopped again, this time for speeding. They fined me 300 rubles, but without a receipt, I only paid 100. The government won't get anything. I'm happy, he is happy, that's the way it always is. I've never met a policeman who didn't take a bribe. Not bad work being a policeman, but they are always, always very careful. They invite you into their car as if to fill out the forms. So it's just you and them, no other witnesses. By the way, they warn me there is another police checkup ahead. Though this is one of Russia's major highways, there are just three narrow lanes in each direction. Kostya has to maneuver around the potholes. But with the recent return of private enterprise, services that disappeared under the communists have reappeared. Gas stations, motels, and some really quite decent eateries are modern versions of the inns Radishev frequented. Over homemade cabbage soup at Manya's restaurant, Kostya describes the perils and pleasures of travel now. If you stop on the road somewhere between small towns, guys come up and demand money. You need to come to some agreement, or else they will slash your tires or beat you up. The question is how little you can get away with. But now there are drug stops. They won't touch you there. Now you can wash up along the way. In the past, we would camp by river, but now there are places with showers and even saunas. Off the highway in a village called Lubyan, we find a school named after Radishev. The fact that he visited this hiccup on the road is a high point in Lubyan's 500-year history. The village roads are rutted, even when there's a veneer of pavement. Potholes the size of small ponds are filled with water from a recent rain. 60-year-old Nelly Lukyanova is the English teacher. It is a very little town, one musical school, two clubs. The cinema uh, is shown. No, films are shown. <laughs> and uh, most of all, uh, little houses, wooden houses. Wooden houses with outdoor toilets and communal water pumps. The infrastructure is so fragile that a strong wind has knocked out the heat and electricity yet again. The school's chilly. Principal Galina Kudrna says the fervor of the early years of reform has dimmed. Wages are too low. If we had decent wages, there wouldn't be any problems. But with salaries the way they are, it's hard to maintain enthusiasm over the years. You understand a teacher also wants to eat, to dress properly, and we all have families. 
37-year-old Galena doesn't want to go back to the way it was, but is clearly confused by the new reality. She misses the protective Soviet cocoon, where information was controlled and planes seemingly never crashed. The media shows so many negative things, not only our country, but everywhere. Some kind of catastrophe, something breaks down, something collapses. It's hard to bear, so we watch less television. It's very hard to prepare kids for the new world. We ourselves haven't adjusted to the new things. Everything is very difficult. In Radishev's day, Russians lived off what they could forage in the forests or grow in their small plots and sell along the road. Back along the highway, little has changed. Stands offer berries and mushrooms, fresh milk and homemade cottage cheese. Near the village of Proletari, there's suddenly a line of tables stacked with a really ugly porcelain. It's made in the local factory. We pull over. Wrapped in a parka to ward off the spring chill, a 30-something woman called Nadia is clearly relieved to see a prospective customer. You're only the second to stop today, she says. As she wraps up a purchase, Nadia explains the factory is in debt. It can't pay wages and compensates workers with China they then have to try and sell. Nadia was in shock and embarrassed the first time she had to stand on the roadside, but after five years, she's more or less used to it. In winter, she might clear $10 a month. In summer, she can make 50. It's not enough to live on. She says her family survives by producing most of their own food. They have a small garden and some cows. She realizes how absurd it all sounds. They're too poor to move away, no one would buy their apartment, and too poor to stay. Long before Marx or Lenin appeared, Radishev debated how to have an effective yet humane economic system. He had no answer and wrote, I went to bed with an empty head. Nadia lives in the hope an investor for the factory will miraculously appear. An hour away, the city of Novgorod has been creating its own miracles. Founded in the 9th century, this is the oldest city in Russia and an architectural jewel. Its bells were a symbol of democracy, enlightenment, and prosperity until Moscow's jealous princes sacked the city in 1471. Radishev called this might against right. He mourned the fact Novgorod would never be restored to its former glory. But Novgorod's traditions were never entirely forgotten, and the city is proud to be in the forefront of reform again. Novgorod's progressive governor has created attractive conditions for investors, among them the Cadbury Chocolate Company. Sheets of chocolate are cut into bars at Cadbury's new factory in the sleepy suburb of Chudova. With its state-of-the-art equipment, good working conditions, and manicured lawns, the Cadbury plant rises like a mirage. We were joking, it's a bit like a spaceship in the desert. Managing director 43-year-old Peter Knauer knows how difficult it is to make the transition from a communist economy. He's a former East German military officer. He lives in a trailer next to the factory, where for the past six years he supervised its construction and development. It's been a challenge, even with tax breaks and a sympathetic governor. The gap between modern manufacturing facilities like ours and the environment is huge. And this is 
a big problem actually that the infrastructure in Russia is lagging behind, well behind the investment coming into Russia now. So companies like ours have to understand uh, that they have not only to invest into their own manufacturing facilities, but they have to invest into the infrastructure, into the environment. To meet its own standards, Cadbury had to establish environmentally effective waste systems. It had to completely revamp the local fire department. And together with other foreign companies lured here, it anticipates investing in local schools so that future workers will be better prepared. And since there's basically nothing to do in Shudava after hours, they plan to build some recreational facilities so skilled workers will want to stay here. When Peter Knauer first started hiring, 2,500 people showed up for a handful of jobs. Igor Yermolova, an experienced engineer, was ready to do anything just to get his foot in the door. He started in the stockroom and is now in charge of technical development. It was my you know, dream to have a job like this. Why? I love this job. Why? I do like uh, machinery and metal and I can do you know, like whatever I want to do here. People who work in technical department also you know, just love you know, <laughs> their job. There's an elaborate security system throughout the plant. The man responsible for this, Alexander Ovchinikov, says there's a lot of organized crime in the area, and it, too, wants to get its foot in the door. For foreign investors, yeah, it's a problem to defend them, their selves, their business, and their staff sometimes. Because uh, some big guys, sometimes they try to, to involve you in, in some business, and they directly uh, threat me and uh, a few times, yeah. They try to, to be part of our business. Oh, the threat was, I'll hurt you unless you hire me and bring me inside. Yeah. Cadbury now has 700 employees. Director Peter Knauer says Russians are beginning to believe they can make things better. The changes in, in people's mentality is that people start to believe in change that they see change happen, and therefore they think it's not impossible to change Russia into a modern country. We leave this spaceship in the desert behind and head back to Novgorod. Only a quarter mile from the Cadbury facility, we stop at one of the ubiquitous wooden houses with carved window frames. An old woman draws water from a pump. Alexander Radishev would feel right at home. Coming up, the Russian Orthodox Church teaches Tom Sawyer. Who wants to be Aunt Polly? No, easy. And uh, Tom, who will be? No, Katya, come here, please. You're listening to A Russian Journey. A special report from American Radio Works. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is a special report from American Radio Works, A Russian Journey. I'm Deborah Amos. The road from St. Petersburg to Moscow is some 400 miles long, a thoroughfare that wends its way through the Russian countryside, crossing villages so small they can be traversed in barely a minute. 200 years ago, the Russian writer Alexander Radishev visited 24 of these settlements and chronicled what he saw. 
his searing condemnation of despotic rule became a Russian literary classic. Two hundred years later, NPR's Anne Garrels retraced the Russian writer's journey. She continues her report. Conversations along the way seldom touch on politics. Kremlin intrigues may be the hot topic with the Moscow set, but in the provinces, Russians are fed up with political antics they consider largely irrelevant. They're much more concerned with their family, their town, and their ability to make a living. This hit home at the Women's Parliament in Novgorod. Despite the name, the Women's Parliament is really a kind of club where women can study psychology, health, law, how to set up a business, or simply how to work a computer. The women here hope to improve their job skills or just learn. 44-year-old Irina Vajnova expresses the palpable excitement of those gathered here. I'm changing inside, that is clear, and I want my children to live better in this different society. An open society isn't just a word, it's the desire of most people. We will reach it, I think. 200 years ago, Radishev lamented the role society inflicted on women, whether the false fashions and coy behavior of the cities or the brutal servitude of the countryside. Irina Barisova, a dynamic 57-year-old who founded the Women's Parliament, says Russian women are still victims of sex discrimination and confining tradition. A trip to the United States, where she met with American women's groups, shook her to the core. Russian women become pensioners at 55. The very word means the end of life. But when I was in Iowa and saw active, engaged American women, some as old as 75 with their eyes still burning and exerting influence, I was inspired. I went out and got my driver's license. It's important for women to have confidence. For men, it's another problem. Russian men are destroyed by 55. Their health is shot from drinking too much. Russians are looking for something to believe in beyond politics. Inspiration and consolation come in many forms. here in Novgorod, it's been the Baptist Church. It started in a private home, but has now moved to a brand new imposing brick building. Funded by Americans and Canadians, it's a carbon copy of a typical Baptist church in the United States. The congregation has expanded from 20 to more than 500. Peter Hughes from Roanoke, Illinois, is with an organization called the Fellowship of Christian Farmers International. We were helpful in advertising the need for monies for this church and the fellowship contributed a pretty good sum of money for to build this church. How much for instance? Oh I I don't know. I'm gonna guess we it was seventy five to a hundred thousand. I'm just guessing. But there were times that we brought over twenty seven thousand in cash and so forth. How have you seen, I don't just mean the physical structure of the church change, but have you seen the congregation change, develop? Oh, yes. uh, yeah. How? Well, the, initially you had a, you know, a lot of elderly ladies and children and one or two men and very few young men. Now you have young men and families, so it's tremendous. It's tremendous to change. So, and Anatoly, he's the dynamo, he's the leader, so yeah. 
He's great. Anatoly is Father Anatoly Karabel, the Baptist minister. He started in Soviet times when it was forbidden to proselytize or educate children in the faith. Now he has a Sunday school and a training program for new ministers. His goal is to open 35 Baptist churches in the Novgorod region alone, but he says he continues to face opposition. Not every time freedom is freedom. It looks like freedom, but it's not. They don't want us. All the time they said we are American church. They said we like a Protestant church, it's not Russian church. The Russian Orthodox Church, which wields huge influence and sees itself as the bastion of Russian culture, contends no other import is as dangerous as that of so-called Western religions. When Soviet religious restrictions were lifted in the 1980s, the Orthodox churches were besieged, but after the first wave of religious fervor, attendance has dropped off. The Orthodox Church resents and fears foreign competition for Russia's heart and soul and has tried to restrict its activities. Radishev, who vehemently opposed any form of censorship, argued long ago this kind of attitude arrests progress. In the small town of Garadnya, the Orthodox priest Father Alexei has no time for the foreign visitors. He says outsiders will never understand Russia or Russians. He attacks what he believes to be Western meddling in the spiritual and political life of his country. In response, he's fighting back. This competition is what Radishev would call progress. Father Alexei has started a church school to help feed, clothe, and educate the area's poor. This isn't the traditionally fatalistic and authoritarian Orthodox Church, which for so long seemed more comfortable restoring cathedrals than people's lives. Father Alexei's charges are not only learning prayers, old church Slavonic, and church history, they're also being prepared for a competitive world. And despite his anti-Western sentiments, that includes learning English. Uh, who wants to be Aunt Polly? Aunt Polly. Kto? No, idzi. And uh, Tom, who will be? No, Katya, come here, please. The text the school children have memorized is from the most American of writers, Mark Twain. They act out the moment so, when Tom Sawyer manages to dupe his pals into painting the fence. Uh, please, uh, begin. Tom, Tom, where is that boy? Tom! Here I am. Oh, you've been to the... You've been to that closet. You've been to the closet. What is that? What were... You do there. Doing there. Doing there. Nothing. Nothing. Across look the street, Dr. Galina Stepanova is the local pediatrician who looks after the health of these children. She's also one of Father Alexei's most devoted parishioners. She's seen it all. Under the communists, she was assigned to the Soviet Arctic for 25 years. When medical funding dried up in the early 90s, she moved here. Her middle-aged husband died, and she thought there was nothing left to live for. Father Alexei gave her hope, and she says the church here has responded to the social earthquake. These families have learned how to take care of themselves now. I tell their neighbors, don't give them anything for free. 
ask them to help you so they understand what responsibility is. In the village, the attitude in the past was, get what you can for nothing. People understand they have to work. With that, this tiny imp of a woman leads us to a bluff overlooking the nearby Volga River. The wind is strong and the waters run clear and blue. On the ridge, she skips and spins exuberantly like a young Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. Galina Stepanova has faith in God and man. Two hundred miles into the trip, we reach Valdai, one of the few places where Radishev is not a hero. He wrote that all the local women were prostitutes. If so, they've moved on to greener pastures. Closer to Moscow, they line the highway preening for business. Valdai, a town of about 20,000, is now famous for its lakes and aspires to be a tourist haven, but it's got a long way to go. The streetlights are never turned on, apparently to save electricity. And then there's the Hotel Valdai. Radishev was treated to baths and the comforts of so-called lustful monsters who stole travelers' money, health, and valuable travel time. We were treated to a Soviet confection of chipped white brick. The unsmiling staff seems surprised, if not downright upset, to have foreign visitors. With a new willingness to please permeating Russia these days, it was a shock to come across Soviet-style brusqueness. You have to pay a fine if you fill in the complicated registration form incorrectly. Payment for the room is demanded in advance. The curt explanation is, Russians live day by day. It was a rough night. The Valdai Hotel had long since shut off its hot water and heat. The room was freezing. And then suddenly, in the wee hours, there was this noise. A check of the door dispelled fears of an intruder, but the noise continued. It was loud. It was downright raucous. Telltale nibble marks in a box of oatmeal later revealed it had been the scratching, gnawing assault of a Russian rodent. Morning came too quickly, or not quickly enough, depending on how you look at it. The receptionist, resigned to trouble, asked, what are your complaints? She wasn't going to do anything about them, and it suddenly became clear why the hotel demands money in advance. When competition hits this town, and it's coming, this hotel will be history. At breakfast, the other guests were also bleary-eyed, but their problem wasn't mice. A number of men and women washed down their eggs with shots of vodka to work off their visible hangovers. Later outside the hotel, Kostya, our driver, points to two men staggering along the sidewalk with something in their arms. They've got the back part of a television set, and they're taking it to sell as scrap metal to get some money for vodka. They stripped it from their apartment. Look at them. They're all blue under the eyes. The men, somewhere in their late 30s, are in rags their faces puffy and disfigured by years of drinking. Kostya says he's seen it a million times. Essentially, you tear down your apartment bit by bit until there's nothing left, all for a bottle of vodka. Just as it was in Radishev's time, alcoholism is Russia's curse. Sociologists speculate its roots are frustration and despair. Serfdom, socialism, and the social upheaval of the past 10 years have all played their part. 
It's estimated a Russian is six times more likely to die from alcohol-related illness or accidents than an American. At this children's home in Valdai, most of the kids have been abandoned or removed from their families because of the effects of drinking. There are 50 kids here ranging in age from 3 to 18. 13-year-old Yana softly sings along to the tape of a pop tune entitled, You Will Forget Me. These children are the casualties in the front line of Russia's decade-long effort to create a market economy. Officials estimate there are as many as half a million kids now living in orphanages. The bare living room is sparkling clean. The kids are well-fed and adequately clothed. But like Yana, they have one wish. As Yana tells me how much she wants to go back home, the deputy director, Ludmila Petrovna, sadly shakes her head. There's no chance. The children are all from the Valdai region. Until four years ago, they would have been shipped off somewhere else. But those facilities are now overburdened for the same reasons. Valdai has had to build its own orphanage. Ludmila Petrovna. I would like many things for these children. Good books, so when kids come home from school, they would have something to read. Sport equipment and, of course, computers. Also, we have no transportation to take them anywhere. Though desperately short of funds, the underpaid staff is devoted. It's like a narcotic. I cannot leave these kids. I know each of them. Even in some cases, what they are thinking, what they dream about. Like many Russian towns, Valdai is hooked up with a sister community in the United States, in this case, Canyon City, Colorado. Valdai clearly hopes to benefit from American experience and, bluntly, from its financial resources. Canyon City has come through. It's sponsoring a family crisis center, the first of its kind in the region. Thanks to this sister city system, several people from Valdai have had the chance to visit America over the past few years. One of these is English teacher Valentina Fedotova. We are patient and we hope for our better life. It will be better, but it will take time. Lest we think everything about Russia is grim, Valentina introduces us to the Smirnov family. Luba, a gangly 15-year-old with an irrepressible attitude to match her brains, is Valentina's top student. Luba's already plotting how she can escape, what she calls boring old Valdai. I want to find a good man in Russia, in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, I, I don't care. Not Valdai? Not Valdai. <laughs> because there are no good men in Valdai. There aren't? All the drunkest. <laughs> It's true. (laughs) Why do you say that? Because all the good people go away to who had money of who have money of course go to Novgorod, uh, Moscow, Saint Petersburg, or to other big towns, big cities, but they don't stay in Valdai. The tea kettle announces it's time for dessert. The Smirnovs, highly skilled computer specialists, live in a comfortable three-room apartment with evident signs of success. Yet four years ago, this family had nothing. Like many we've met along the way, these Russians had to leave their home in a former Soviet republic, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Estonia, 
and in the Smirnov's case, Kazakhstan. Luba says life in newly independent Kazakhstan became impossible because of economic decline and growing anti-Russian sentiment. We had to move. If we didn't want, but we had to do it. And uh, it was very hard. When we first came here, it was very hard. We, don't have, we didn't have flat. We didn't have enough money to live. And uh, we didn't have work. My parents didn't have work. They rebuilt their lives from scratch. Though Luba's father, Alyosha, drives an ancient car, Luba sports a new set of braces, and the family has a computer, as well as access to the Internet. For Radishev, contact with the rest of the world was hard to come by. Censorship and limitations on travel extended through the Soviet period. Now the world is at Luba's fingertips. I know the English chat where I can talk to people from many countries. We talk in English, and of course it is a very good practice for me. Now I'm in the side of my email. When I am in internet for many hours, uh, <laughs> a big bill comes to us, and uh, I have to make my time little. Uh, of course, I want to uh, be in internet every day and uh, as much as I want, but I can't, unfortunately. Luba says her father cries when he sees the big bill, but Alyosha Smirnov denies his beloved daughter very little. She's one of just two students in her class of 30 with internet access, yet access to Western culture extends beyond cyberspace. Strangers in the night, exchanging glances, wandering in the night. Luba would prefer the Spice Girls or Ricky Martin, but her parents' tastes run to Frank Sinatra. In fact, he's rated the most popular singer in all Russia. And everyone in the family knows all the words. He turned out so right for strangers in the night. I'm Deborah Amos. You're listening to A Russian Journey, a special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. To see photographs and to learn more about post-Soviet Russia, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll also find information on ordering a tape copy of this program. That's all at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is A Russian Journey, a special report from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. Russia is struggling to overcome the legacy of czars and commissars. 200 years ago, Russian writer Alexander Radishev was a passionate advocate of freedom, and his observations echo today. On a trip through the provinces, he criticized corrupt and uncaring bureaucrats and lamented the poverty he found in rural Russia. Following his footsteps, NPR's Anne Garrels reports on this final leg of her trip from St. Petersburg to Moscow. We've been on the road for a week and we've covered about 200 miles, which puts us about halfway to Moscow. Kostya, the driver, has just pointed out a rainbow in front of us. 
Perhaps this bodes well for the rest of the journey. Having just said that, the car's broken down. We appear to be overheating. Luckily, Kostya can fix anything, especially his own jiggly. That's one good thing about being in a Russian car. Uh, they're pretty simple, and you can get parts everywhere, so we've got our fingers crossed. To pass the time while Kostya works on the car, we listen to a tape of folk songs. Radishev wrote, he who knows the melodies of Russian folk songs must admit there is something in them which suggests spiritual sorrow. The source of Russian melancholy has long provided writers with food for speculation. However, Kostya's current melancholy is not a subject for metaphysical debate. It's bad Russian engineering and shoddy spare parts. We limp to our next destination, Vishni Valachok. This was a marvel of commerce for Radishev, but apart from some beautifully restored churches and monasteries, Vishni Valachok has seen better days. When you ask anyone about life here, one of the first things they mention is the low birth rate. In the last few years, the population has shrunk from 75 to about 60,000, and by all accounts, it's likely to continue to drop. Svetlana Sarokina, a teacher at the local school, says on salaries of less than $100 a month, Russians simply can't afford to have more than one child now. I would love to have more children, but I couldn't support them. Higher education has become expensive. The population decline has become a national crisis. The government has warned if it's not turned around, the economy will soon be affected and Russia's status in the world further threatened. The decreased average lifespan has accelerated the problem. Outside the local theater on Lenin Street, its name hasn't changed, brides, grooms, and guests wait in a line that stretches down the sidewalk to a parking lot. Katya, a store clerk, is in a long white gown with flowers in her upswept hair. This 20-year-old can expect to live until she's 72. But her groom, Alexei, being a Russian male, can only expect to live until he's 59. While this is a great deal better than in Radishev's day when the average Russian died at 30, it's worse than it was under the communists just 15 years ago. After waiting impatiently for an hour, Katya and Alexei are finally ushered inside, where in a brief ceremony, they're pronounced husband and wife. <laughs> Alexei says the registrar wished them peace, happiness, and lots of kids. <laughs> the champagne flows. And to the chance of bitter, 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 the bride and groom kiss and kiss and kiss. The longer the kiss, the sweeter the champagne will be. And, it said, the longer the couple can hope to live. They then go to a party at Katya's parents' small apartment where they will reside for the foreseeable future. There's not much room for lots of children. Kostya, by now our regular commentator, is struggling to bring up a son in a cramped one-room apartment in Moscow. He scoffs at official coaxing to have lots of children. Who knows what will happen in the country, what prices will be. There is no confidence in the economy. Everyone is afraid to have kids. We could all suddenly have nothing. We get back on the road. 
At one of the shiny new gas stations, Kostya stops to fill up the tank. When he gets back in, he's fuming. The pumps were rigged, and he was cheated of several liters of gas. He has a solution. You know Red Square, the place where Tsars used to punish people. If you were to take just one person who take bribes, someone from high position, a big cheese, if you were to condemn him to death and show the execution on television so the whole Russia could see, the next day theft and corruption would stop. Show what happens if you take bribes. Otherwise, in Russia, there will never be order. 301 miles into our journey, we reached the picturesque city of Tver, a provincial hub with exquisitely restored 18th-century buildings painted in pastels of green, pink, and blue. There's a good new hotel and a boulevard named after Radishev. No wonder, for it was in Tver that Radishev wrote one of his most impassioned passages, a plea for what he called the priceless gift of liberty. For Radishev, the law was a divinity, which if impartially and humanistically applied would guarantee truth and justice. There's a large university in Tver, and law is now the most popular program. A student-run law clinic offers free consultations. On this particular morning, an elderly Russian gets advice on how to pursue his pension claims in court. The idea of community service is new, supported by American grants, and the students get invaluable experience. But Ivan Baranov, one of the law students, suggests Western influence can also erode Russian ideals. In Soviet times, the children should ask that um, I want to be a cosmonaut. Uh, nowadays we hear that uh, we want to be a criminal because the criminals are the rich people. The system of values changed because the influence from the West, we, we got not the best, but we got all the bad. Bradyshev wrote that the law was unable or unwilling to protect Russian citizens, forcing people to take it into their own hands. Sergei Vasilyev, a third-year law student, says this remains true now. About police and about the prosecutors, I can say for sure that people do not respect them because uh, they think that uh, the police and the prosecutors follow the interests of the high officials and uh, of the government. And uh, <clears throat> sometimes they think that uh, they receive bribes. Professor Ludmila Mikhailova doesn't have much good to say about the judiciary either. She's enthusiastic about this new generation of law students, but as long as Soviet-era judges fill the bench, she says there's little hope for real change because they're poorly trained, ill-paid, and without any support. Judges don't even have enough money to obtain copies of new laws being issued. There are no stenographers in the courts, just a secretary who takes notes on the proceedings by hand. She can easily miss key details or what she writes can be completely inaccurate. Given this resounding condemnation, the obvious question is why so many young people are in law school. Unlike Radishev, who eventually committed suicide in despair over Russia's inability to reform, Sergei Vasilyev is an optimist. And I want people to respect the law and I think that in future they'll understand that the usage of law is necessary in their life and they can protect their interests only by respecting the law. The challenge of dragging this country into the 21st century is most poignant in the villages and farms, which Alexander Radishev would immediately recognize. 
Like the others we've seen along the road, one village here is indistinguishable from the next, each nothing more than a collection of weather-beaten wooden houses and crumbling barns. No longer slaves to czars or totalitarian Soviets, rural Russians remain numbingly poor. In the village of Maksimseva, the collective farm is too poor even to go bankrupt. No one wants to bid on it. A dairy worker is roused from a drunken stupor. All that's left here are a few cows, the feeble, and the elderly. 86-year-old Anastasia sits on a bench warming herself in the early spring sun. Life was never good here, but now, she says, it's even worse. This collective farm is nothing but a rusted heap. Tractors and harvesters decay in the muddy barnyard, untended and useless without spare parts. The surrounding fields lie fallow. Anastasia's neat house and vegetable garden are a stark contrast, a testimony, perhaps, to pride and private property. Delighted to have some company, Anastasia grabs her stick and hobbles up the steps to show off her humble, cozy three-room home. A central wood-burning stove provides warmth, as well as the oven where she dries mushrooms she collects in the nearby forest. But she's running short of fuel. She hasn't been able to afford meat in two years, and with a pension of only $30 a month, she worries about how she'll get through next winter. Anastasia clings to us as we say goodbye. It's an emotional farewell. We find the head of the farm waiting for us outside. 61-year-old Viktor Ipolitovich says prospects for Maximseva are bad. The equipment is out of date, and there aren't enough trained people left. The young people just don't want to live here. He says the farm was never profitable, not even with Soviet-era subsidies. Each year, the authorities just wrote off the losses. No one had to accept any responsibility. Not a bad life, Victor chokes bitterly. This legacy and the absence of investment spell the end. While the communist system had its problems, Victor says the present government has simply posed new ones. Freedom means different things to different people. Out here, freedom of press doesn't mean anything. And we were never concerned with political freedom. We were just concerned with raising our children and sending them to school. We had certain guarantees, and those are now gone. In the early 90s, we thought we had a chance to improve our lives. But then the government screwed us. Back on the road, Kostya mulls the Russian condition. His eyes suddenly brighten. What would happen if you gave our government the chance to rule your country for one year? Do you think our officials could succeed in destroying America in that short period of time? I bet they could. Let trade places. We'll give you our government and we'll take yours. Your country would be ruined, and we would be better off. Kostya's view of corrupt, uncaring Russian officials could be lifted from the pages of Radishev. And like most people, Kostya suspects anyone who's made big bucks in recent years must be a crook, that the money could only come from plundering Soviet assets or trading in air. Our last stop, two hours from Moscow, defies this stereotype. 
Beyond a guard post down a long avenue of newly planted trees, 51-year-old Alexander Panikin has created a model farm with proceeds from his clothing business. There are orchards and ponds overlooking well-tended fields. He says he succeeded because he started early in the 80s before inflation hit. The sad thing about the Russian economy is that we produce nothing with value added. Making cheap tables and chairs, that's all very well and good, but we're lagging way behind. We produce raw materials which depend on world prices. It's been good lately, but if you look down the road, government policies spell doom for this economy. This man is passionate about Russia and what it could be. He's created what he thinks a Russian estate should be, not the cruel enslavement Radishev condemned or the subsidized misery of a Soviet collective, but a profitable farm with a milk processing plant and a bakery where workers earn a decent salary, which is paid on time. His manager, Alexander Litvin, a retired military officer, is clearly devoted to Panikin, who he thinks can save Russia. He says Panikin isn't one of those new Russians, a dismissive epithet used for those who've made a killing and socked it away overseas. He is someone who wants to do something good for Russia. That's why we love him. Though some people are frightened of him, but you have to be strict or you couldn't achieve this. When I first started to work here, there were bottles and cigarette butts everywhere. We cleaned it all up and issued a decree. If you get caught drinking on the job, there is a 1,000 ruble fine. That's a lot of money. To start with, no one believed us. But now you won't find one bottle here. Brick by brick, this businessman and gentleman farmer has conjured up a vision. There are formal gardens, a swimming pool, as well as indoor sports facilities, and a guest house where Panikin entertains high-level officials. As we drive away, Panikin's estate has left our driver, Kostya, speechless. He didn't believe there were Russians like this. Oh, he has achieved something concrete. I respect him. Yes, I respect him. With that, the journey to Moscow draws to an end. We hit urban sprawl that reeks of new money. The traffic grows more intense. The pollution starts to choke. The billboards multiply, advertising Italian kitchens and German bathrooms. Moscow is the mecca of extremes and dreams. But dreams are no longer only for the residents of Moscow or even St. Petersburg. When Alexander Radishev made this journey over 200 years ago, he had a dream. It's been a bumpy, bruising trip. But if he were to do it again, he might just believe it could one day come true. I'm Ann Garrels. A Russian Journey was produced by Robert Rand. It was edited by Cotty Simon. The executive producer is Bill Buesenberg. I'm Deborah Amos. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Tapes of this program are available for $12. Send a check or money order to Tapes, 45 East 7th Street, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55101. American Radio Works is the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. This is NPR, National Public Radio.